0: for free shipping and 365-day returns.
2: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show in which we demonstrate that everything, simply everything, has its own history, like vests, grass and lemonade. Hmm. Oh, I'd love to do the history of
1: lemonade. I think that would be brilliant. Or we could do the history of moods, prudes and roods. In other words, that sort of religious symbol, the cross or crucifix uh, with Jesus upon it. Um, snoods, broods and dudes. <laughs> I think we should definitely do the History of Dudes. um.
2: (laughs) That would be excellent. I would hugely
1: enjoy that. (laughs) However, for the moment, we will be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining very clearly how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, who knew that the history of ink is in fact all about elections and fraud, ancient China, the personality of American presidents. It's also about spies and the Cold War. And who could forget... It's about Renaissance letter writing or that the history of losers, which is one of my personal recent favourites, is in fact all about Donald Trump and the 2020 US presidential election. It's about democracy. It's about Jim Carrey, an Ace Ventura pet detective, Homer's Iliad, Charles Dickens, workhouses, Oliver Twist, presidential concession speeches, Al Gore, Hillary Clinton and the US War of Independence and General Cornwallis. It's a packed episode, and if you haven't heard it, go back and take a listen.
2: Um, now... You're probably wondering who is doing all this talking. Let me say that the man not sitting opposite me, uh, we are social distancing still. He is the Kurds and way of history itself or perhaps the scooper of the Kurds and way or perhaps even the ladle in the hands of the divine scooper of the Kurds and way of history. He could be all of those things. You never know. He is Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. It's James Daybell. Hi, James. Hello, Sam. And the man not sitting
1: opposite me because we are social distancing still, would you believe? Well, let's just say that if he were a historical cheese, he'd have the nose of a stinking bishop, the zing of a Cornish yarg and the all round likability. Of a Dairy Lee Triangle. Yes, you've guessed it. It's the famous historical adventurer himself, yeah. Dr Sam Willis. I was particularly pleased there with the the likability of a Dairy Lee Triangle. I was obsessed with Dairy Lee Triangles as a kid.
2: Mm. I certainly You could just sort them. of
1: munch the end off yeah. and then you could just chew the end off and then squeeze. And they'd come out in this really satisfying little sort of spout of cheese, rather like a sort of squeeze of toothpaste, uh, although much
2: more toothsome. <laughs> you're bombarding me with wonderful words today James is great <laughs> the um do you know what that's made me think something so we are of course, ladies and gentlemen, doing the history of cheese, and there are so many different ways we can think about cheese um and what i've just realized is that I have my own personal relationship with cheese which has changed over time so uh, and James I'm sure you will as well you think back on your your childhood life where you were munching on cheese strings or dairyly triangles and your palate may have advanced somewhat now to maybe some slightly complex and very stinky blue cheeses Who, who who knows but the point is as well I think is that um mine certainly has I'm eating some really interesting cheeses I had some manchego for lunch uh, I like that it was really really good but anyway it, I, I definitely didn't like that even five years ago um, and I think your palate changes you become uh, more interested perhaps more used well me certainly uh, more used to uh, very strong um, tasting things so um, as a as a, as a a little kid you might be into your Dairyly Triangle but as an adult you might be into your hardcore uh, extreme cheddars does that make sense for you James?
1: It makes total sense. As you mature, you get a more sophisticated palate. Um, I I insisted on bringing my daughters up uh, liking all sorts of cheese. So uh, rather than introduce uh, mild cheddar to them, uh, as toddlers, they were introduced to extra mature cheddar. So they got that <laughs> real sort of taste for cheese. Yeah. But it struck me thinking about cheese. Um, we've actually talked a lot about cheese across our episodes. <laughs> yeah, it's, we've it's talked ringing about bells, cheese and the worms by Carlo Ginsberg's brilliant book, where we looked at maggots. There's maggoty cheese, that Sardinian delicacy. The Scythian warriors, we've talked about them and the discovery of, of these sort of archaeological finds of bags of cheese. We talked about cheese in dreams. We talked about bad cheese, uh, but the reason we're doing this is because. Uh, during lockdown, the perfect antidote for me over the last couple of weeks has been watching Rick Stein's Cornwall, which is a brilliant 15 part uh, series on BBC uh, that tours uh, Cornwall. Um, and it, it's, it's, it's really sumptuous, a real sort of, you know, refreshing look outside of your sort of locked in life. And one of the one of the episodes had this amazing um Dutch family who'd moved over to uh, Cornwall and had basically started um making gouda uh, and it was incredible and I thought having having seen this I need we need to do something on the history of cheese which then got me thinking about Samuel Pepys and his uh, his his description of the great fire of London which sees him um rather than sort of really concerned with with the fire and everything he's more concerned with burying his his parmesan cheese and he describes this this is the great fire of london as you all know um it started on the 2nd of september 1666 and burnt all the way through to um thursday the 6th of september Um, And it destroys a lot of the sort of London of the time. And he describes in an entry on the Tuesday, the 4th of September, 1666, he describes Sir William Penn and I to Tower Street. And there met the fire burning three or four doors beyond Mr Howells, whose goods, poor man, his trays and dishes, shovels, etc., were flung all along Tower Street in the kennels. And people working therewith from one end to the other the fire coming in on that narrow street on both sides with infinite fury. Sir William Batten, not knowing how to remove his wine, did dig a pit in the garden and laid it in there, and I took the opportunity of laying all the papers of my office that I could not otherwise dispose of, and in the evening Sir William Penn and I did dig another and put our wine in it, and I my Parmesan cheese, as well as my wine and some other things. So cheese can be right at the heart of historical events there, Sam.
2: Hmm. Yeah, I, I like that. It's the everydayness of it, isn't it? Um it's a funny mixture, actually, cheese, isn't it? It's, it's the, he, so he's got Parmesan cheese and he's really worried about it. So there's, there's a balance between it being an everyday item and it being at the heart of major historical events. But also it's a foreign item. It had a certain amount of value. Uh, I, had he had it imported, was it actually you know proper Parmesan cheese, do you think? Or was it made, made in, in... Oh, I bet
1: in... it was real proper Parmesan yeah. cheese imported, which is why it's such a valued item that you'd want to keep hidden and preserved from the fire
2: and, and such an important part of people's day-to-day lives i mean cheese was was an absolute staple and it was eaten all the time and i want to pick up on this theme because it's it, it explains something which uh, i i've been reading up about recently and that is um ethnic cleansing in the middle ages james which is uh, which is surprisingly all about cheese uh, well at least there's one example of it um And I wanted to talk to you about Well, I I think you can start off by 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 thinking about um, ethnic cleansing, the destruction of certain peoples and how in the Middle Ages it was actually inseparable from the, the idea of making other peoples that ethnic cleansing was a very important part of historical change. And the understanding of it was certainly underpinned by narratives in the Bible. And there's a little quote here, um, and this comes back to, where are we, 1381. So, uh, Peasants' Revolt. And many Flemings lost their heads at that time, and namely those who could not say bread and cheese, but instead said brode and case. His uh, quote is from a London chronicler of the 15th century, and he's looking back on the Peasants' Revolt of the summer of 1381. And what's interesting about this is he doesn't say anything else apart from that about this massacre of the Flemings and the fact that they were massacred, according to this person writing, simply because of their inability to pronounce the word cheese and also the word Bread. And it actually raises all sorts of very important questions and ideas. Firstly, who was a Fleming? Well, late medieval um, English sources d- d- describe as Flemings, not only people who were natives of Flanders, but also inhabitants more broadly of the entirety of northwestern Europe. Um, and the description of the event, this this massacre, is actually, it, it's described more broadly in Latin chronicles but really not very much more broadly I mean they say for you could see heaps of dead bodies and corpses lying in the squares and other places um, and then there's another from a, a monk in Westminster and so they spent the day thinking only of the massacre of the Flemings so there's really not much going on here but that's partly why it's really interesting well we don't know about this apart from the fact that a a massacre occurred uh, it's the peasants revolt. So it's a, it's a large uprising across across England in 1381. It has various causes, um, primarily it's associated um, by historians with what happens in the aftermath of the Black Death. There's all sorts of social tensions, economic tensions, political tensions, um, which, which sort of come to a head between the 1340s and the 1380s. There's a final trigger in the spring of 1381 to do with someone trying to collect unpaid poll taxes and it leads to a very large section of rural society rising up and and rioting and um, uh, attacking prisons the famous prisons in London the fleet and the Newgate but they also attack Flemish uh, immigrants Um, we know that on the 14th of June the crowd uh, bundles along the Thames they burn houses of officials they open up Westminster jail they let loads of people out then um, they move into central London. They do something similar there. And then there's a, they don't just massacre the Flemings they come across. They're actually hunting for them and they're trying to find Flemings. And we know that, that in one ward alone in London, 40 were killed and they were piled up at the Church of St. Martin Vintry, uh, which was a church which was popular with the Flemish. And there are other examples of of groups of the Flemish um, being, uh, being massacred um and uh, historians have really kind of not paid too much attention to this and actually just earned uh, the focus of one sentence in a 20th century history now how do you think about this is, is what is the point of this and i what's really interesting is that think about it this way you say that actually the slaughter of aliens didn't need much explaining um it almost as if it was self-evidently likely to occur when when the commoners of England rose up. And a, another way of thinking about it is in terms of um the, the longer history of, of inter-ethnic bloodshed um and, and how they understood it. And in the case of the Flemings, the, the language test, which supposedly sealed their fate—the inability to pronounce bread and cheese—was actually a very common um, element in accounts of ethnic cleansing of destruction. The the, 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 uh, the manuscript he came from dates; it's much later than the Peasants' Revolt in 1381. It dates to 1435. That's worth bearing in mind. So the person who was writing. Writing the description may not have actually been basing it on uh, first hand knowledge of the accounts, but might have implanted into this story this idea of the inability to pronounce something. Because we know that that motif about sort of stumbling over tricky words, that there are numerous examples of it. It's not just this bread and cheese one from the Flemings, um, there's one from 1302 in Bruges. Where you've got a group massacred because they can't pronounce the words shield and friend. Now, all of those, so if you think of shield and friend and bread and cheese, they're, they're very sort of homely words. They're us words, um, which is how it's been described. Um, another example from 1312, you've got people being killed uh, because they can't pronounce, this is in Poland, in Krakow, they can't pronounce, um, again, very homely words, lentil, wheel and Mill. Um, and it's believed that this actually goes back to uh, biblical tradition. Um, in the book of Judges, you have the Gileadites forcing the Ephraimites, never heard of them, to say Shibboleth. And that's another example of how uh, an inability to pronounce something leads to ethnic cleansing. So well, what's the point of this? Well, James, there's a chance that they, they didn't say cheese wrong, but there's also a chance that they did say cheese wrong. Um, But in that not knowing, there's actually a very complex history in the inability to pronounce homely everyday words as being a reason, a justifiable reason, or a believed reason in in common narratives for ethnic cleansing. But I just go back to the bottom bottom point here is that um, is how homely and everyday and regular cheese was, and that the inability to pronounce it, perhaps, was something that really, really did f- defined you as different and alien. Oh, that's brilliant, Sam. Cheese and
1: ethnic cleansing and the peasants' revolt. Love it, love it, love it, love it. Now, I was inspired not only by watching Rick Stein talk about cheese to think about this as an episode, but also because I read a brilliant article in The Conversation, by an academic uh, who's an expert on early modern witchcraft, called Tabitha Stanmore, and the title of her article, which you should all read, and and you probably will have come across it because it's gone viral. Uh, it's entitled "The Spellbinding History of Cheese and Witchcraft," and what she does in this sort of really sort of pithily written thought piece is draw out the connections between magic, witchcraft, and cheese. And this absolutely fascinated me. So I went off and did a little bit more work around the edges. But I think, you know, that one of the things that struck me is that if we look at the history of cheese and its magical properties, it has a very long history. So beyond the sort of medieval period that you've looked at, back into ancient myth and legend, cheese has had this sort of m- almost magical property that's connected to divine intervention, divination, um, predicting the future. Uh, it's also attempted to heal the sick and and influence good fortune uh, and also is tied up with the malevolence of witchcraft. But one of the most striking things that I found, um, and this was really what got... Um, uh, Tabitha Stanmore to write about this was that she came across this um, this um, instru- this sort of recipe uh, in a in a book called the Catherine Poulsen's, uh by Catherine Pulsen called the Complete Book of Magic and Witchcraft, which basically said that you may fascinate a woman with a piece of cheese, which basically uh, means that you can proffer uh, a woman a lump of cheese. And she will sort of become besotted by you. So I googled this up uh, and would you believe I actually found a duvet cover. You can purchase a duvet cover um, with this on it and with a picture of a woman and and cheese, which is extraordinary. But if you go to the complete book of magic and witchcraft itself, um, the recipe is on page 90 to 91 Uh, And it's got all sorts of recipes for how to how to charm people, how to have love, love charms and things like um, the introduction of one's hair, clothing, sweat, tears, blood, nails, etc. Into a lover's food may be the love charm most widely practiced. Um, But there's another one here, um, which is to win the love of a woman, take salt, cheese and flour, mix it together, put it into her room and she will have no rest until she sees you. This is uh, a...
0: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweaters starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quinz.com slash style for free shipping
1: Uh, something from uh, Albertus Magnus's uh, uh, Egyptian Secrets, uh, and on the other page, on the next page, page ninety-one, there's also another um, another recipe, uh, which is slightly more um, complicated. Which, and I'll read it in, in its entirety to you. In the pingle, uh, which is a small pan, or the pan, or the house pan, skull a man, boil the heart's blood, o the toad, with the tallow of the kite, hawk it, chop it finely, kale and hen dirt, chewed cheese and chicken wort, chicken weed, yellow puddocks, champ it, spiders ten and earwigs twa, Sclatters too, which is another word for woodlice, fray foggy, which is moths, dykes, bumbies twenty, fray they bakes, nest, newts fray stinking lockers blue, and will make a better stew or brew, bachelors morn had a charm, hearts they have for oh harm. In other words, there's another recipe here to try and charm somebody into. Um, into being um, being in love with you. But also, you can trace this back to, to sort of pagan times and Christian spells about summoning good fortune, healing illness, and in Icelandic folklore, a suitor would carve cheese with symbols before giving it to a young woman, hoping that she'd fall in love with him after eating it. Now, secondly... Um, th- this, there's the idea that cheese is connected to fortune telling, and did you know that this is this was in fact in the Middle Ages? It had a name. Uh, the name is tyromancy. <laughs> would right. you believe? Which it is works. basically divination from cheese, and you could use all sorts of food items um, to to for divination purposes. You could use eggs and animal intestines and cheese. And the idea with cheese is that you know rather like reading tea leaves, it's a way of connecting the patterns and symbols that are in the cheese and If you think about cheese you know and how you make it, and you talked about the the way and everything, and you think about you know various cheeses with mold in it, cheese has all sorts of bumps and bits and pieces in it and cracks and rinds and it's in all sorts of shapes and the the Tyromancer, in other words, the cheese reader, could predict all sorts of things about people 's future fortunes from this, whether it be about money, love, sex, travel, death, all those kinds of things could all come into it um, it 's also um, it 's also a way cheese is a way to identify thieves and murderers, and this is an example. Uh, that Tabitha Stanmore gives in that brilliant conversation piece, um, where she talks about the um, method of of blessing cheese with a prayer, and gives an example: uh, "May his mouth be cursed and full of bitterness, under his tongue pain and labour. If he is guilty, he will eat in the name of the devil. If he is not guilty." He will eat in the name of the Lord Jesus. So then what you do is you give the suspect a small piece of cheese to eat and the culprit will be unable to swallow the piece of cheese, which will then show that they are guilty. They're eating in the name of the devil. So there we are. There are two sort of separate things. There's a there's it used as a love potion. There's also it used as a as a way of telling fortunes. And finally, there is the use of the use by witches of of cheese for malevolent practices now witches are often are often accused of curdling milk and turning milk sour, which again is to do with cheese but i was i was I was looking at some Scottish witchcraft cases um and I found one uh dated from the fifteenth of uh of April. Uh, in 1644, and it refers to a woman called Marion Peebles, who's implicated as a as a witch, and there are various sort of people investigating her, and she's accused of meeting the devil in various forms, uh, especially as two crows, so the, which were the the familiars. Um, and it's it the notes that go along with this. Um, show that she was requested to remove illness after cursing a woman. So she gives uh, some, some money, some silver, uh, to her husband to, to sort of keep quiet and then sends a ch- the woman some cheese. Um, and what happens is the woman then becomes... she The woman refuses to eat the cheese. The woman gets better, but then two cows that she owns take ill and so the 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 cause against her is that she's transferred the illness from people to animals and the woman got better after biting um the woman's the witch's fingers until they bled um so it's a it's a it's also noticed that she destroyed the crops and caused a cow to give blood instead of milk um so you know there's an example of of meddling Malevolent witches now, here are some examples of how you can use cheese in everyday life for kind of mysterious magical means uh, and I was reading uh, I was reading a blog post uh, by a woman who is a sort of modern day culinary witch uh, and recommends uh, that you could compel someone into action by carving a phrase of intention onto a cheese and place it at their doorstep. So whatever you wanted somebody to do, you could carve that into a sort of piece of cheddar, place it on their doorstep, and they would, be, they would be, you know, forced to do it. Um, another thing is if you, if, you, if you have a question, what you do is you carve possible one-word answers into a fresh wheel of cheese. Then you leave it in a sacred space until mould begins to form on the rind. And the mould will fill in. Uh, this this sort of area and reveal the correct answer. Um, so there we are, Sam. A couple of couple of examples uh, for you. You
2: should all go out and practice that. They're brilliant, James. I really enjoyed enjoy, enjoyed the witchiness of it. There are <laughs> various uh, issues, <laughs> um, various issues there which I've, I became interested in, and that's how. Uh, the history or archaeology of cheese can be used to trace peoples around. You know, I think you you kind of did touch on that slightly, and it makes you think about how uh, you know the, the the first evidence we have. So, um, one of the things about is about unglazed. Prehistoric pottery, right? What's so good about it is that it can absorb things. One of the things it can absorb is animal fats, it can, as well as plant oils, plant waxes, variety of things, which means that cheese, evidence of cheese, is one thing that can be identified in unglazed prehistoric pottery. And by doing this, they've dated the milking of animals to the Near East to 7,000 BC. Uh, they've, made, they've dated cheese making in Poland to 5,400 BC. BC. uh, And in Ireland, get this, this, I thought it was amazing, 3,800 BC. (laughs) Wow. So there's clever, clever bit of archaeology there. Um, The oldest cheese itself um, has been um, identified to uh, Xiaohe Cemetery in northwest China. Um, It's been radiocarbon dated to 1600 BC. Um, uh, So you've just got all these different cheese is being made all over the world in different ways. The the earliest description we have is Roman, um, about 50 AD. So, you know, it's been made for thousands of years before we even get the first description of it. But that Roman description, there'd be a lot recognisable there for modern cheesemakers. What I thought was fascinating about all of this was a a little description of some people uh, making cheese in relatively modern America. So this is 1979 and 1980. You've got two American women um, from European heritage. But what they do is they, they leave California, one, and Vermont, the other. And they go to France, where they learn to make fresh and uh, ripened goat's milk cheeses. And then they come back, and on opposite coasts, they, um, they, they set up their own businesses. So one in Vermont, one in California. And what's fascinating about this is that you've got Americans wanting to create cheese from goat's milk and also sheep's milk, but they can only do that by having to travel to Europe. And that's because of the history of American immigration. Uh, And it meant that because of the types of immigrants moving to America, the domestic expertise in cheese production in America was centred on cow's milk. So you've got the Puritans from East Anglia, um, they bring dairy cows and methods of handcrafting cheddar style cheeses to New England. In the 19th century, they're joined by Dutch, Swiss, Germans, and Italians, who are all focused on cow's meal, milk cheese. And because of this, there's no. Um, a significant American tradition of making commercial goat or sheep milk cheese production in the seventies and the eighties. There is now lots of artisan people doing it their own way in you know classic kind of artisan uh, way of making cheese, which has become almost like an art form. Um, but, uh, certainly, not that long ago it wasn't at all, and all of the cheese that you could find in America and all the all of the cheese making knowledge was all to do with cows and not to do with goats and milk so cheese making of course is to do with empires and migration as much as anything else. James oh Sam, I love
1: that, and this talk about early cheese making leads me to my last example, as I was scooting around the place, reading up on cheese, I chanced on something called um, Cheese and Culture: A History of Cheese and Its placed in Western Civilization uh, by a historian called Paul S. Kindstedt, uh, and it's a brilliant book. I'd recommend you all go out and check it out. I mean, it, it's really wide-ranging. So it starts by looking at Southwest Asia and ancient origins of cheese, and then it looks at relig- the rel- relationship with religion and civilization and trade and. Mediterranean and then Caesar and then has a look at cheese production in manors and monasteries. Then it looks at England, Holland and the market for cheese. And then it looks at factory cheese making and the cultural legacy of cheeses. But what really caught my mind here is, I think, one of the earliest descriptions of cheesemaking that I've come across. And it's in Homer's Odyssey. And would you believe it, Sam, there is a cheesemaking cyclops here. So this is a, the Odyssey, as you all know, is a sort of an epic poem. It's about 12,000 lines. Um, it's brilliant. And it's basically, you know, the, a, a sort of um, an, a big adventure story with all sorts of characters in it. And it's about 10 years after the Trojan War and Odysseus, uh, the hero, and his men are sailing around the Mediterranean. Um, and they basically try and get back to their, their homeland, uh, back to their hometown of Ithaca Um and on this journey, they stop off at the island home of a a one-eyed giant, um, uh, in other words, a cyclops. And they, they come to shore, and Odysseus and his men, when they're sort of roaming around, they find uh, a cave that's inhabited by one of the meanest cyclopses there is, a cyclops known as Polyphemus. Um, and he sort of is around the... You know, is elsewhere on the island, and they go into his cave, you know, hoping to look for things to to eat and and sort of provision themselves with, and they learn actually that he is a cheesemaker. Like, listen to this quote: "We soon reached his cave, but Polyphemus was out shepherding, so we went inside and took stock of all that we could see." His cheese racks were loaded with cheeses, and he had more lambs and kids than his pens could hold. They were kept in separate flocks. First there were the hoggets, then the oldest of the younger lambs, and lastly the very young ones, all kept apart from one another. As for his dairy, all the vessels, bowls and milk pails into which he milked were swimming with whey. In other words, what you have here is a one-eyed, monstrous, giant, master cheese maker. <laughs> so he's got all the vessels that you need for it. He's keeping the animals separate from where he's working. Um, we've heard about the way being kept. We've got various um, ages of uh, lambs uh, and, and sheep that he's got there, his flocks, so that you've basically got milk on tap at all these different levels um, so you've got everything that they that, that you know they could need now rather than sort of running off with all of this what they do is they sit in wait uh, for the cyclops to come back in with his sheep and, and to let him sort of get on with 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 sort of you know about his his, his things um and what happens is when he's finished his cheese making, Odysseus and his men basically attack him. Uh, they blind him in his one and only eye, so he basically can't—he can't—he um, can't see them. Uh, and then they flee. And what's worse is that they flee, not only having eaten all his cheeses and everything, um, but they—they they flee on his sheep. Uh, so they go off away with them. Now the problem with Polyphemus is not only is he really angry, uh, but his father uh, just happens to be one of the gods, Poseidon. Uh, and so he summons uh, his father and tells him that he should punish these people. And so the rest of the tale, the Odyssey, is basically about these poor sort of characters, Odysseus and his men, you know, sailing around the the oceans, you know, trying to trying to get home. So there we are, and the ancient art, the truly ancient art of cheesemaking, Sam. I think it's feta he's discovered there. (laughs)
2: That was very good. Very good indeed. Um, Ladies and gentlemen, I hope you have enjoyed that very much. I did hugely and we've got more coming your way. We are... I'm going to be recording. What have we got coming up, James? Ladders. I think we're doing the history of ladders. Oh, meetings. We're doing the history meetings of meetings and tongues. <laughs> you will do You you suggested tongues. Yes, I, I'm looking forward to that. Um, I hope you enjoyed that. Do please get in touch with us on social media to share your stories of cheesy history. Um, we're we're absolutely um, chomping at the cheesy bit for it. Uh, do please follow me on social media at Doctor Sam Willis. And if you're interested in maritime and naval history, please check out the Mariners Mirror podcast. It's my new big thing, and I'm very excited about it. And I'm sure,
1: uh, I'm sure people took cheeses afloat. Uh, you can follow me on at James Daybell. You can follow the podcast on at Unexpected Pod. We are all over social media, so you can follow us on Instagram. You can also friend us on Facebook. And we have a bespoke website, uh, historiesoftheunexpected.com, which has everything that we've been up to in recent years and everything that we're going to be doing. Uh,
2: so check us out there. That's it for now, guys. We'll be with you again soon. Cheerio. Bye. Take care, guys. See ya.
0: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things.